This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled, Taking the Bodhisattva Vow, recorded November 14, 2004, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. All right. So here's the question that was left in the question box. The Bodhisattva Vower promises to stick around for the eventual enlightenment of all the numberless sentient beings. So, what about cats or dogs or any of the myriad non-human creatures that we human beings maintain deep and loving relationships with? Can they wake up while still in cat form or dog form? Or must they somehow progress to a precious human birth first? What is your understanding of this as a mystic? And then it says a little note, the practitioner poses this question not out of spurious curiosity. Oh, heaven forbid. (laughs) But out of concern for the benefit of all beings. Respectfully submitted by Vip Short. I won't give his um, phone number out because he's he's happily partnered up with somebody at the moment. I'm in a good mood today. (laughs) So, um, if I simply answered the question, what is your understanding as a mystic, whether... uh, cats and dogs and stuff can become enlightened. The answer would take about 60 seconds. And then it's not a very sunny day and you'd have nothing to do for the rest of the morning. (laughs) So as sometimes I do, I'm going to take this opportunity to uh, expand on this whole idea of the Bodhisattva vow and what that means and so forth. And then as I thought about that, I realized, well, I actually have to give you a little bit of a history of Buddhism in order to place this all in context And by the end of it, we'll get to the actual question. One of the reasons I'm giving this little history of Buddhism is not um, just because you're all here ready to become Buddhist scholars, but actually what has happened in Buddhism is uh, very similar to what happens in all traditions. They go through these stages of development. uh, They need to be reformed and so forth and so on. So if we get an idea of just how one tradition evolves, then we can also apply that to other traditions. And that helps us as we get into uh, the traditions and start trying to grapple with some of their ideas and some of their teachings. And hopefully there's some lessons in here about how to keep that stuff straight. So if you just relax here, the first part of it isn't all that profound. It'll get profound at the end when I give my opinion. But... The Buddha, for those of you who don't know, was born into Hindu civilization, or maybe we should say an Indic civilization, a civilization that existed approximately 500 years before the birth of Christ uh, in uh, in what today is modern India. And there was a worldview that most of the people there held. Uh, Buddhism came out of that. Jainism came out of that. And the worldview has certain fundamental assumptions about life. And everybody who teaches in any tradition has to teach in terms of the worldview. Otherwise, no one's going to understand them. Conceivably, you could make up your own completely personal, private worldview. It'd be, your teachings would then be unintelligible to anybody. We ourselves live in a 
a society that has a worldview. Ours is in a little bit of a crisis, and there's a little bit of mixing and matching going on because we have this materialist worldview from science, and we have hangover religious worldviews, and then we've been introduced to some new worldviews coming from the East. So we are in the process of trying to settle on or straighten out uh, a way of seeing the world and seeing all these things in a consistent fashion, which is what a worldview tries to do. It gives us a consistent way of viewing the world. So anyway, the Buddha came out of this background, and in this conception of the world, life was considered to be like a wheel. And the little self, the jiva it's called in Sanskrit, went around and around on this wheel through births, deaths, rebirths, reincarnations, cycling through six realms of existence. Uh, let's see if I can remember them off the top of my head. There's the hell realms. This is starting from the bottom up. The hell realms, the hungry ghost realms, the animal realms, the human realm, and two god realms. So that's six realms. So depending on what sort of life you lead, you would go up or down on the scale of uh, realms. And if you led a pretty good life, you'd start going towards the god realm. And if you let a bad life, you start going the other way. But in any case, building up merits and so forth just got you into another realm. And in a certain sense, it was like, a, you know, a bank account. After a while, your capital's expended and then you, you fall back and you go into another realm. So you're going round and round on this wheel. This whole existence is called samsara. And then there are two things about <laughs> samsara. First of all, it is dualistic. I'm not just dualistic, it's multiplistic. There are many, many jivas and selves cycling around, and the whole world is made up of many different sorts of objects and beings and whatnot. And all these objects, all this phenomena of samsara is all impermanent. So it is inherently a source of suffering for these beings. Because anytime that you get a little happiness by getting what you want, eventually that is going to disintegrate or perish. It's impermanent. So then you're going to have unhappiness and disappointment. And primarily the source of suffering is that in all these births that you take, they don't last. And so eventually they run out. You die in whatever realm you are, so to speak. Even if you're in the God realm, eventually you die and you go into some other realm. So you have to live over and over and over again, being born growing old, dying, being born, you know, so forth. And if you're in the uh, animal realms or the hell realms, or the hungry ghost realms, it's just, you know, really full of suffering. There's no respite. So the question that the Hindu mystics faced was, how do you escape from samsara? How do you get off this wheel? And they gave, and I'm boiling this way down and making it way oversimplified, but they gave an answer that basically said the first thing to do is to become detached from the world of samsara. Stop trying to grasp at all this impermanent stuff to make you happy because it's not making you happy. And the more you grasp at it, the more suffering you're going to have. So just let go. And then stand back and watch for a while and you will realize that actually this self that you think you are is illusory. It's a delusion that you're actually an individual self cycling through all these realms. And not only that, samsara itself is an illusion. And if you believe it's real, it's a delusion. This world of multiplicity. 
the truth is a non-dual reality called nirvana, which we can't really say anything about because if we start speaking about it, we are dividing the world up into multiple things. So it's beyond words. Uh, we can say some things about it. The, the Hindus talked about consciousness, bliss, being. They use some descriptions to point to an ultimate reality. And it's not just value neutral. The happiness we're seeking is actually already there in the bliss of nirvana itself. So the idea was if you realize that there is no self and that this whole world of multiplicity is an illusion, you discover nirvana and then you still sort of have to hang out here until the, your karma runs out. But when you die, you get absorbed into para-nirvana and that's it. You never return again. You're off the wheel. You're home free and all that. So that's the basic conception of the Hindu worldview that the Buddha was born into. And actually, the Buddha agreed with all that. That is basically what he taught. Uh, he had some disagreements, and they really mostly centered on how you make this discovery. And at that time, anyway, in the uh, Hindu worldview, there was a lot of reliance on a creator god that was conceived of as a big daddy in the sky sort of being. And he said, there is no big daddy in the sky. And you, by making sacrifices and all this, you, you can't win liberation. You have, each one has to work out their own liberation for themselves. That's a very famous line of the historical Buddha, as far as we know, historical. Uh, on his deathbed, actually, it was like his dying words. He told a young monk, each must work out their salvation for themselves. So, by the way, it's important to know about Buddhism that none of the Buddha's words were written down for at least several hundred years after he died. So it's a, a similar situation to Jesus. He didn't write anything down himself. So, you know, what is the historical Buddha and what is not, we don't really know. What did the Buddha really teach? And what we do know is what his disciples a hundred years later thought he taught. And that's what we have to go on. So now later Buddhists came along and they said, well, this is great. And, you know, the Buddha was the great, you know, one who led the way, the exemplar. But they said, this understanding that now we've come to, there's some problems with it. And the first one is philosophical. And again, I'm, I'm way oversimplifying this. There are lots of, you know, intricate debates among all these Buddhists of the time and so forth. So I'm just trying to boil it down to some, you know, brushstroke uh, key points here. The first one is this idea of samsara and nirvana as opposed to each other. Because this is duality. And the Buddhist teaching is about non-duality. So if we have this idea of here we are living in samsara and we're going to nirvana, and a lot of the early Buddhist imagery was about that. You're crossing the sea of samsara. and Buddhism is a raft and the Buddhist teachings. And so you take this raft and you cross over to the other shore. And that was a common term that was used. And then someone become enlightened. They'd say he's gone, gone, gone to the other shore, gone beyond and so forth. So this idea that there are two worlds here, there's samsara and nirvana. And the, these later Buddhists, we're talking now 500 years later, so 300 years later, started saying, well, wait a minute, this is this is dualism. You're teaching dualism. The Buddha didn't teach dualism. He's teaching non-dualism. Here's an example from a Buddhist scripture called the Lakavatara Sutra. Those who are suffering or who fear suffering think of nirvana as an escape or a recompense. 
They imagine that nirvana consists in the future annihilation of the senses and the sense mind. They are not aware that universal mind and nirvana are one, and that this life and death world and nirvana are not to be separated. In other words, somehow this is it. This samsara is nirvana. We just don't see it, but that's what's really going on. There's no far shore really to go to. It's nice to talk that way, and it's, it's a useful imagery, but it's not quite true. And then they also said, you know, and then we have a practical problem here, because if a student is working for their own self-liberation to get themselves in their nirvana and off this wheel and end their suffering, this self-centered motivation just perpetuates the illusion of self. Because the illusion of self is something that we actually create. It's created through our imagination. We are, and we have to do it all the time. You know, when we stop doing it, the, the periods we do stop doing it every day, when we're in dreamless sleep, the mind does shut up, and then there's nothing there. Do you know what I mean? There's no sense of self. And one of the reasons we don't remember anything from dreamless sleep isn't because there isn't consciousness, there is, but it's not us, it's not me. And so I wake up from dreamless sleep and there was nothing there and there was no sense of me, so I wasn't there. So, and one of the reasons we continually in our minds have this stream of thought going on in us, we are continually creating ourselves in the world. So, if we are working on a project of self-liberation, we are continuing to create the illusion of self. This is what Tibetan Buddhist Lama Lodro says. If anyone says, I am going to achieve enlightenment, this grasping prevents him from reaching a non-dual state. As long as I am going to get enlightened, then there's I and there's other. There's duality. So, it's self-defeating. It can't work. So at this point, Buddhism split into two major schools. And these reformers now call themselves the Mahayana Buddhists. Mahayana means great vehicle. Maha is great. Yana is vehicle. So the great vehicle. And they called the older practitioners the Hinayana, which means little vehicle which is a little derogatory. And in fact, there are, you know, Hinayanas today don't really like that term much. The term they use, and a better term to use, is Theravadians, which means the elders. So they were sticking with the religion of the elders. And the Mahayanas were, you know, forging new ground here, so to speak. By the way, I'm not giving an editorial on who was right or who was wrong. I'm just trying to describe history at this point, okay? Because there are Theravadians around today, and there's perfectly good Theravadian teachings, and they're Mahayanas, and, uh, you know, Buddhists tend to be more polite than in other religions. They don't argue so much in public. I don't know what they say of each other in private, but uh, they tend to keep their dirty laundry at home, you know. Anyway, Mahayanism, just as a historical fact, is the religion that spread to Tibet, and then through Tibet to Mongolia, China, Korea, over to Japan, and then down into Vietnam. And the Theravadian tradition spread south through what is today Sri Lanka, Burma, uh, Thailand. They're all Theravadian. So that's why the Buddhism of Thailand is different from the Buddhism of Japan or, or Tibet. And then, of course, 
as it spread, they broke up into various sorts of schools, but they're still all considered within the Mahayana tradition. So, as I said, the Mahayana Buddhists started promoting other teachings in contrast to the Theravadins, and one of them was that samsara and nirvana are not different. Samsara is nirvana, nirvana is samsara. So here's a text called the Homeless Brothers, a Mahayana text. If one looks upon the world with eyes dimmed in ignorance, he will see it filled with error. But if he looks upon it with clear wisdom, he will see it is the world of enlightenment itself. So, in other words, here we are. We're sitting in the world of enlightenment. We just don't know it. We just don't see it. But that's what's going on, according to the Mahayana. And then, more importantly for our purposes here, they corrected this business of trying to achieve enlightenment just for yourself. And they said, no, uh, really what you should do if you want to get enlightened, and it's, it's kind of paradoxical, you should take the bodhisattva vow. And this became foundational in Mahayana practices. So what is the Bodhisattva vow? Now notice Vip in the beginning referred to that. He said the Bodhisattva vowers, sort of a modern way of putting it, uh, promised to stick around for the eventual enlightenment of all the numberless sentient beings. That's a good accessible way of putting it. Bodhi, first of all, means uh, you could translate it as awakened wisdom, Sattva means a being, so bodhisattva is an awakened wisdom being, an enlightened being. But an enlightened being who has taken this vow not to actually enter nirvana, or, or you could think of it as, they, as when they wake up, they are in nirvana, but they choose to return to samsara to help other beings awaken. And when they die, they don't just abandon the wheel and get off and go hang out in Paranirvana. They choose to reincarnate back and to take various births and come back and help beings achieve uh, liberation. Numberless beings, because especially in the ancient uh, Indian texts, you know, they like to talk about how many beings are there in the world who honored one there are more beings than the number of grains of sand in 10,000 Ganges rivers, in 10,000 worlds, in 10,000 galaxies, dot, dot, dot. They, they create these astronomical numbers to this kind of imaginary multiplication of grains of sand of the Ganges. So it's a big, it's a big task if you think of Bodhisattva vow. Here's what the Diamond Sutra says. It's a Mahayana text. It's Buddha talking to his disciple Subhuti. And he says to Subhuti, any good pious disciple who undertakes the practice of concentrating his mind in an effort to realize highest perfect wisdom should cherish only one thought. Namely, when I attain this highest perfect wisdom, I will deliver all sentient beings into the eternal peace of nirvana. So now notice, this is a vow you take when you're beginning the path. To not do this selfishly. You're doing this for any selfless reasons. My teacher, Dr. Wolf, had a version of this he called the Kuan Yin vow. And I don't know quite how he came up with this sort of westernized version. But here's the way it goes. Never shall I seek nor receive private individual salvation. Never shall I enter the final peace alone. 
but forever and everywhere shall I live and strive for the redemption of every creature throughout the world. I knew him when he was 96, 97 years old, and he'd grown up in a very Victorian world, so he had that sort of formal way of speaking stuff, and he would say, I don't insist that people take this, but I highly recommend it. <laughs> Just some side notes about Kuan Yin, although you couldn't tell it from this version of the vow. Kuan Yin was a bodhisattva in the Chinese tradition, Chinese Buddhism. The name is actually a name of a bodhisattva that you can trace back to India, but by the time the bodhisattva arrives in China, it's a woman. Guan Yin is a woman's name. And it's interesting because in Buddhism, uh, male or female can get enlightened. It makes no difference. Sex makes no difference to enlightenment. So they were you know, ahead of their time in that sense, and at least in, in, in lip service to that idea. But Kuan Yin says, since it makes no difference, her vow was to always come back in female form. So she would always reincarnate as a woman. And so the Kuan Yin vow is the same vow as a Bodhisattva vow, but particularly uh, if you're vowing to come back as a woman every time, it would be a Kuan Yin vow. The Bodhisattvas also sort of become, in these traditions, what from our point of view and our culture we would call archetypes. So, for instance, Kuan Yin is very interesting because there are all these stories about Kuan Yin and her powers in the Chinese culture, and they mirror very closely the Virgin Mary in Christianity. And she manifests very much the same qualities. And one of the qualities is this total non-judgmental compassion. It doesn't matter what you've done. You could have done the most horrible things. If you call on, on either of them, and it's really, from a Jungian point of view, it's the same archetype, just wearing different clothing to suit the culture. If you call on Kuan Yin sincerely for help, she'll help. She doesn't ask, are you worthy of help or anything like that? And there are marvelous stories about her in the Chinese culture about people who, uh, villains, who are really awful, horrible villains who have slaughtered lots of people, you know, and it's a kind of interesting twist. They've been cornered by the good guy who's about to exact justice, and they call on Kuan Yin, and the good guy laughs because they're such terrible creatures, and sure enough, she comes down and she paralyzes the good guy. He can't do anything, you know, and he's always shocked and amazed that she would respond to such a dreadful person, but these stories are very important. They tell us the radical nature of this kind of love and compassion. Uh, Jesus had a lot of that in his teachings, you know, love your enemies and all that. This is very Kuan Yin, Bodhisattva sorts of teachings. And then as archetypes, they can also appear in visions or dreams or whatever. So again, it's just like in the Abrahamic traditions, there are archetypes of saints and so forth who might appear to you in a dream. So if you are a Buddhist, you might dream about Manjushri, who's the great archetypal Bodhisattva. Also, sometimes, particularly in the Tibetan tradition, you'll run across descriptions of lamas like the Dalai Lama who are reincarnations of famous bodhisattvas that keep coming back over and over again. So uh, there's all this, you know, trying to figure out the bodhisattva lineage of some great teacher, where they're coming from. So this is just to give you background, because if you get into these traditions, you run across it and it may first strike you as being weird and exotic or whatever, but it all relates back to this initial vow that was taken that you're coming back for the sake of all beings. And this whole idea of a bodhisattva vow, the term is a Buddhist term, and the idea of the reincarnation is Eastern, 
But the essence of this you find in every tradition. Every tradition, every mystical tradition stresses the importance of selfless love and compassion. You don't attain union with the divine if you are self-centered. It's very interesting. Among the Sufis, they have almost exactly the same idea. Uh, they put it in terms of an ascent and a descent. And so the spiritual journey is an ascent to God, and then there's union, but then you have to come back and be a teacher. You don't hang out there in paradise, in that paradise. So you come back, and then you no longer have a personal agenda. You are available to help humanity. That is the whole, you know, the whole social level of being a Sufi. That's why, particularly in Islam, they don't believe in permanent withdrawal from society. It's part of the bodhisattva ideal of serving people. Uh, Jesus, you know, as I mentioned before, the whole thing is service, service. The two great commandments, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. Love thy neighbor as thyself. That's how you discover the truth that sets you free. So these teachings are in all traditions. They just take this particular form in the Buddhist tradition of the Bodhisattva vow. But if you're from a different tradition, don't go look at the Buddhist, just look into your own tradition. You'll find the essence of it right there. It is essential. It takes two wings to fly. One is the wing of knowledge and the other is the wing of love and compassion. And without either of them, the bird is crippled, the bird can't fly. You need both. That's how crucial it is to practice love and compassion. So, now, if you take the Bodhisattva vow, it changes your motivation for practice. It's very important on a path. Almost everybody, almost everybody starts on the spiritual path for selfish reasons. Rightly so. They're suffering. They're unhappy. Get me out of here. They tried other things in life, you know. They, they took the course in selling real estate and making uh, friends and influencing people, and it hasn't worked. Maybe they made a lot of money in real estate, but they're still not happy. So at a certain point, you know, you stumble on these crazy mystics and these teachings and stuff like that. And so we approach it the same way we approach everything else in life, which is fine. That's the way it has to be. But it's a big turning point on a spiritual path when you begin to let go of this I, me, mine all the time and you start to take these teachings to heart and you start to actually live them. And I mean live them in a day-to-day -day concrete context where you're rushing out from the, I don't know, the uh, ah, grocery store, you know, the supermarket on your way home to watch the election results because you've you got to find out if your guy won. And on the way, there's some, you know, old woman struggling with her packages. And you say, well, somebody else will help her. And you rush by and jump in your car and go off. If you've taken a bodhisattva vow or you've taken to heart any of the teachings of the other great traditions, you don't. You stop. You help that person. And you see that this is really revolutionary if you really do this. In the beginning, there's a tug of war and a struggle and so forth. But, you know, we have a saying in English, virtue is its own reward. It's true. You start to realize there's another way to live that isn't about grasping all the time and fear of what's going to happen to me. There's a way to live that is open and expansive and giving. And you start to let go of all this concern for me and you start to be happier. Uh, we're talking way short of enlightenment. And the more you do that, it, the more you're convinced that Self is not something 
that is the most precious thing in the world that you have to protect and enhance and so forth. That actually it is the cause of your suffering. You learn this through your own experience, not because some Buddha told you. And more and more, your attitude towards self starts to switch around. You no longer want to hang on to it. You're no longer frightened of all these teachings and say, you've got to surrender yourself and all that. You start saying, yeah, tell me how. I got it. Self is suffering. Self is a burden. And then the whole problem becomes nobody tells you exactly how you can put this burden down. But it means now you are ready. It means you're truly ready. Because, you know, a spiritual path has to work a transformation that isn't just in the mind. It's a transformation of the total being and particularly in the heart. Because otherwise, our mind can consent to all these teachings and knows all about enlightenment and knows all about realization and all that. But if the heart is resisting, it ain't going to happen for you. Because the heart rules, whether you know it or not. Most of us don't know that, but the heart does rule. So these are teachings that transform the heart. So it's extremely important. Here's how the Surangama Sutra puts it. This is back to Buddhism. To the Bodhisattva... The ideal of charity is shown in the self-yielding of the Buddha's hope of nirvana, that all may enjoy it together. A lot of people on spiritual path hear about surrender, surrender, surrender. How do you surrender? This is how you surrender. That self-yielding. This is true charity. Now, notice that this is the self-yielding of the ultimate conception of happiness. I mean, this is major sacrifice here. You know, you're willing to come back time and again, time and again, through all these cycles of existence and to all these numberless beings are let go. I mean, you know, you can't imagine how long that's going to be. Sometimes it's thought of as the Bodhisattva is, um, is like somebody who's gotten out of prison, but they decide to come back and help everybody else get out, and then they're the last ones out. So a true Bodhisattva is going to be the last one to get out of samsara, not the first one. Look at this attitude here. All these stories and all these ways of telling this are trying to, to get us to grok what is going on here, and what a radical shift of attitude it is towards life. A very good example of this is from the life of St. Francis, who was famous for taking care of lepers, the leper colonies that were outside of these medieval villages that nobody wanted to go near because, first of all, they were afraid that it was very contagious, uh, and also the lepers you know, were ugly and full of sores and so forth. And St. Francis writes about it, and he said you know, he took on this practice not because he loved lepers. He was revolted by lepers. They were disgusting to him. He couldn't stand lepers. So he's just like the rest of us. But he did it. And then he says, through this practice, God transformed my revulsion into the sweetest joy. So that's really what the alchemy of this practice is about. So, does anybody have any questions about this bodhisattva vow and all that? Okay. However, there are still problems with the Mahayana view. For instance... If the self is a delusion, who's walking the spiritual path? Who's engaging in these practices? Who's taking the bodhisattva vow? And in fact, in the Diamond Sutra that I read from you just before, the Buddha goes on and picks up and continues teaching Sabuti, and he says, and yet Sabuti, 
If the full truth is realized, one would know that not a single sentient being has ever been delivered. And why, Saputi? Because if the Bodhisattva have kept in mind any such arbitrary conceptions as one's own self, other selves, living beings, or a universal self, they could not be called Bodhisattva Mahasattvas. And what does this mean, Sabuti? It means there are no sentient beings to be delivered, and there is no selfhood that can begin the practice of seeking to attain highest perfect wisdom. Yes, yeah, so that straightens that out for you. <laughs> and then, if samsara is nirvana, right now, we're already here, then what does enlightenment do for you? What does it get you? And the answer is nothing. <laughs> and that's not just my answer. The Diamond Sutra dialogue continues between Sabuti and the Buddha. Then Sabuti asked the Buddha, world-honored one, in the attainment of the consummation of incomparable enlightenment, did the Buddha make no acquisition whatsoever? And the Buddha replied, Just so, Sabuti, through the consummation of incomparable enlightenment, I acquired not even the least thing. Therefore, it is called consummation of incomparable enlightenment. <laughs> and then this raises the big question, which is actually a question that is running around today and confusing a lot of people, that I keep coming back to it, is, why do any practices then? And there's no one to practice, and there's nothing to get. So why practice, right? And the Buddhist answer to this problem is what's known as the doctrine of two truths. Don't let the word doctrine scare you. They don't hold it as a dogma quite like they do in the Catholic Church. But it is a way of understanding teachings. And they distinguish in Buddhism between relative teachings that talk about relative truths and absolute or ultimate teachings that talk about the absolute or ultimate truth. So here's what a Tibetan Buddhist Dilgo Kinsei says. The void nature of all phenomena is the absolute truth, and the way they appear under delusion is the relative truth. By examining relative truth, you will come to realize absolute truth, since absolute truth is the ultimate nature of everything. So, part of this is, you can think of it this way anyway, and this is the way I like to describe it, since you think you are a self, and forget the philosophy now, I mean, you may agree with the Buddhists, there is no self, the way they put it, the self is empty of any inherent existence, that's great, but when you go out in your life, and, you know, you go to the doctor and you find out you got some serious illness. Boy, there's a lot of self there. So <laughs> since you believe, let's, let's say think, since you believe you are a self, then I'll address you as a self and I will recommend some practices to do which will help you see that there is no self. You follow that? One of the practices, by the way, is a challenge, since you believe yourself, go look for that self. And that leads into a whole other um, side of mysticism. That's the knowledge side. I said one wing is the wing of love and compassion. The other wing is knowledge. So that's the self-inquiry side. 
So if you believe yourself, fine. The challenge is go see if you can find one. Through that process, you might realize there is none. Or, now we're getting really stuck with language, the realization may occur, don't ask to whom, that there is none. <laughs> so, the teaching of the Bodhisattva vow holds as a relative teaching. That's why the Buddha started off by saying, uh, Sabuti, if the pious disciple takes this vow, that's what will help you get enlightened. It's extremely important. As long as you believe yourself, the Bodhisattva vow works as a practical matter. And that's what's important here. And the other thing is, a lot of these teachings about absolute truth, by the way, which can never captivate absolute truth, because they themselves are still words, so they're still relative in nature, but they direct your attention to the absolute truth. That's what they really do. So they don't contain the absolute truth. For mystics, there are no words that can contain the absolute truth. But now we're saying, okay, so now we're directing your attention to something beyond what we can even talk about. These are usually reserved for advanced stages of a practice. After you've done a practice for a while, and after you've gotten to the point where, oh, you're falling all over yourself because it's no longer working, which means it is working because in mysticism, the practice is designed to self-destruct. So then you're ready for this pointing out sort of teaching. For example, here's what a great Tibetan master, Longchenpa, says. In the rootless mind, pure from the beginning, there is nothing to do and no one to do it. Now that is a teaching that points to the absolute truth. Longchenpa elsewhere also says, the unexcelled Buddhahood, is impossible to attain until one completes the paths and stages because it is necessary that the defilements of the different levels be abandoned and the virtues need to be achieved. Here's the same teacher giving contradictory teachings. On one hand saying you've got to practice and you've got to cultivate these virtues and so forth and you've got to clear away these obstacles and on the other hand saying there's no one to do anything and nothing to do. So here's where the doctrine of the two truths helps us. If we ask ourselves at what level is each teaching, then we won't be so confused. We won't be putting them together in a contradictory way because they will contradict each other. They will form a paradox. That's why all mystical teachings end in paradox ultimately. But before we get to the point where we're ready to grapple with those paradoxes, there's a lot to do in the meantime. Now, the doctrine of two truths is a Buddhist term, and this way of putting it originated with Buddhism, but you will find it implied in all the great mystical traditions. Let me just give you some quick examples. Here's Ramana Maharshi, a great Hindu mystic of the last century. On the one hand, he says, make no effort. Your effort is the bondage. But he also says, Sadhanas, that's practices in, in Sanskrit. Sadhanas are needed so long as one has not realized. They are for putting an end to obstacles. So this parallels exactly what Longchenpa said, right? He's a Hindu, that was a Buddhist. Here's Meister Eckhart, a great Christian mystic of the Middle Ages. He said, whoever is seeking God by ways is finding ways and losing God who in ways is hidden. But whoever seeks for God without ways, 
will find him as he is in himself. But he also said, no one can be sure of the experience of this birth, that's the the spiritual birth, or even approach it except by the expenditure of a great deal of energy. So on one hand, he's saying, you know, if you're looking for God in ways, you're not going to find him. But then he's saying, on the other hand, it takes a great deal of energy to walk this path. Here's Abdullah Ansari of Herat, who was a great Sufi, and he wrote of Allah. To find you involves neither time nor means. The one who is dependent on seeking is veiled. To seek you is a remnant of separation and dispersion. You are before everything, so what would it mean to seek you? In other words, as long as you are seeking, you are creating the separation that you're trying to overcome. But he also said elsewhere, the last stages cannot be confirmed without authentically securing the earlier stages in the same way that a building cannot stand except upon a foundation. So I see these are almost exactly mirror images of each other. This runs through all mystical traditions. This, by the way, is why we call this place the Center for Sacred Sciences. Because if you examine mystical traditions, you find these parallels of teachings that are are really quite astonishing. This is intersubjective agreement that crosses cultures, crosses traditions, crosses time and place. And you see it. This is an example of it right here. So there is an art aspect of walking a spiritual path, a big one. But there's also a rational aspect. And we also can learn by comparing these different traditions and distilling out these principles that show up over and over and over again. So this is one of them. So if you are reading or being exposed to teachings that seem contradictory, one way to approach this is to ask the question, is this a relative teaching or is this an absolute teaching? And then what can I do with it? Rather than letting your mind immediately get into a head trip trying to battle it out, which is just another story. It's just more yakety yakety yak. In the old days, you know, they kept these advanced teachings secret. They didn't just broadcast them to the whole world. You know, they didn't have internet and whatnot. And they judged when a disciple was ready to get the advanced teachings because it's very confusing. And one of the things that's going on today is a lot of people are putting forward just the absolute teaching. Yeah, there's nothing to do. You know, any practices just interfere with realization, all that. It's not that it's not true. But if you take that teaching as a justification for not doing any practices, you've totally misused it, and you're not going to get anywhere with that. If you've been practicing for a while, if you've been struggling, you get to a point yourself, as Ramana says in a different place, where you can no longer do the practices. And then the teaching comes in to say, well, why don't you just let go now? See what happens. So... It's not just a a philosophical problem here that we're dealing with. These things are pertinent to our practice. And this whole idea of uh, looking at teachings from these points of view as a relative absolute can be extremely useful. So I offer that to you as something for you to use. Then particularly coming back to the bodhisattva vow, how do you know when you don't need to do the bodhisattva vow anymore? Because, after all, there's no one to take a bodhisattva vow and no one to practice a bodhisattva vow and all that. Well, Jamgang Kantral, a great Tibetan master, gives you some clue. He says, the whole basis of mind training is 
the two principles of one, throwing out concern for your own welfare, and two, taking complete hold of the welfare of others. So I would suggest when you've arrived at that point where you've thrown out all concern for your own welfare and you've taken complete hold of the welfare for others, you probably do not need the Bodhisattva vow anymore. Mm -hmm. It's probably extraneous. And if you're hanging on to that at that point, you should probably let it go, drop it. But be honest, you know, we're not going to get anywhere unless we have honesty with ourselves, where we're at and what's going on. No point in trying to pretend to anybody on a spiritual path. You may impress people, but the spiritual path isn't about impressing people. It's about what's going on inside you. So, all this then was a prelude <laughs> to Vip's question. And his question was, can non-human creatures attain enlightenment, basically? Let's see you do this in 60 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> Uh, and then he said, as, according to your understanding as a mystic. And first I want to give you, though, the relative teaching of mystics. And that is, no, that in the Abrahamic traditions, animals do not get enlightened. They do not have union with God. They don't even go to heaven. They don't do that because they don't have souls. They don't have that part of them that is connected with the divine. So it doesn't come up as a question. The animals come up as a question for practice, uh, St. Francis, again, is a wonderful example of someone who used animals to practice love and compassion to all of creation. And so there are a lot of stories of St. Francis and the animals. And among the Sufis, there are a lot of stories of Sufis, particularly in the animals that are most despised, like dogs and stuff like that. So it's not that there's no concern for animals in these traditions, but the idea of animals getting enlightened just doesn't you know, surface. It's not on the radar there. The Eastern traditions, both Buddhism and Hinduism, in general, you're going to find exceptions, I'm going to mention one, in general say, no, you have to be in a human birth to get enlightened. In the God realms, you're not motivated because you're so busy, you know, hanky-panky and, and drinking and, you know, getting high and doing all the things the gods do. You're not motivated to go on any spiritual path to get enlightened. And in the hell realms, you're so overwhelmed with suffering that you can't even think about it. So the human realm is where you have the intelligence and some opportunity to practice and you can get enlightened. So both the Hindus and the Buddhists agree you've got to be born as a human. And this is why they say, how precious is this human birth? See, in the Abrahamic traditions, it's so precious because this is it. In the Hindu and Buddhist traditions, it's not this is it. But you know how long it's going to be uh, generally before you come back as a human being? In fact, the Tibetans have a way of saying it. It's the same chances of being born as a human being again as if I go out in the middle of the ocean and I take a life preserver, you know, one of those round life preservers, and I throw it out in the water and a blind turtle surfaces right in the middle of it. That's about the chance. So anyway, that's the traditional answer. No, you have to wait for a precious human birth. But there are exceptions, and one was Ramana Maharshi. And Ramana Maharshi had a cow that he uh, testified to its enlightenment. And we have pictures of the cow in one of the books. Do you know, I think it's the Osborne book. We have videos of the cow. We have videos of the cow? <laughs> <laughs> Giving a teaching? Maybe we should show it on Sunday. No, he was under a vow of silence. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we got a crossover. The cow gives the answer to the koan, does a dog have a Buddha nature? <laughs> Moo! <laughs> 
<laughs> and I will tell you that we've had uh, five and a half cats, you know, around this household. And I can tell you for sure that five of them were, uh, well, let's call them five, that four of them were definitely not enlightened. <laughs> there was one, the Dharma cat, we called them, who I sometimes wondered about. This cat was one of those amazing creatures that you find, and it wasn't just uh, us who, who thought that way. Uh, when he was dying and he no longer could eat, uh, I guess he couldn't smell, so he couldn't identify his food. So he was starving, he was running around the neighborhood and a lot of people had cats and they had dishes of cat food outside, stuff like that. And he would go from house to house all over the neighborhood and I'd go looking for him and I'd talk to people and they'd say, uh, oh, are you talking about that skinny black cat that comes around? I said, yeah. And they said, it's amazing. Our cats drive off all the other cats, but he just walks up and they all just, you know, and let him come and all that. It's true. So it's a possibility there. <laughs> so, um, those are the traditional answers. Now, I'll give you my answers. Now you can put your clock on here, uh, Wesley. <laughs> put your stopwatch, go. Okay. So, the absolute answer is, can dogs and cats and other non-human creatures get enlightened? The absolute answer is, there are no non-human creatures. Period. Okay? And then I have some advice to give you. And that is, stop worrying about it. <laughs> if you are kind to all beings, all beings will become your teachers. That's the 60-second answer. Now I'm going to tell you... What? 31 seconds. Good, I was even... Beat 60 seconds. Beat the clock, right? <laughs> now I'm going to tell you a story how all beings, even cats, can be your teachers. Every spring, the south wind starts to blow again after our long, gloomy, dismal winters. And our last cat here, Cinder, who's definitely not enlightened, but who's very smart, but not that smart. <coughs> Every spring when the south wind blows, she goes tearing outside and she dances around with the south wind and she comes in and her eyes are big as saucers and her tail's all bushy and she keeps saying, I'm going to run off with the south wind. And I tell her, don't run off with the south wind, Cinder. Don't run off with the south wind. Oh, she's so excited. I say, no, no, no. Listen, think about this. The south wind, yes, it's beautiful. It's warm. It caresses your skin. It's full of the aromas of coconuts and pineapples and floras. You know, it comes up there from Hawaii, the Hawaii Express. You know, it's all that. It's very seductive. But where is the south wind going? It's going north. It's going, you know, up to Alaska and beyond and the barren wastes and there's nothing up there. If you wait for the north wind, now the north wind, I know, it's cold and it's stern and it's severe and, you know, but where does the north wind go? The north wind goes south. The north wind will take you to the real paradise. And so this is like us, you see. We're always seduced by the south wind. That's the wind of samsara. And when the north wind blows along, which is the wind of practice, or a little austerity, a little discipline and so forth, oh no, we don't want to take that. But the wind of samsara always ends up in the barren waste. And the north wind, the wind of practice, takes us to paradise. Yeah. Now we're back in time. Let's see. Okay, any questions? Yes. Um... 
when I sit down to meditate, I have this desire to meditate, you know, a decision to meditate. There's someone who says that that, that desire is the one I'm seeking. So that in that instance, the desire to seek is the one that I'm seeking at the same time. Well, yes and no, but let's not argue about uh, whether that is true or not. Let's see how that could be useful. And desire, as we normally talk about it, usually directs our attention to the object of desire. So if you are sitting down and you have a desire to meditate, then the attention goes towards the meditation. So then you want to focus on your breath and whatnot, which is great. And I would not discourage anybody who's developed a desire to meditate from going ahead and using that and meditate. It's, it's hard enough to get to the point where you have a desire to meditate. But at a certain point, if this question is coming up, then it's interesting to say, okay, you got this feeling that somehow the desire itself is connected with what you're seeking. Why not follow the desire back the other way? Instead of pointing it to the object, who or what is the desire arising from? So there you could use the desire both ways. See, You could use it to meditate, but then even more profoundly, maybe you could use it to find out who's meditating. Then maybe you discover what the Buddha said to Subhuti. No one's meditating. <laughs> but, see, this is the one thing that the Buddhists have uh, so much going for them in terms of precision of their analysis and all that. I think they're particularly useful to our culture. But one thing they have that's always been a hang-up for them and was back through their whole history. They always put things in the negative terms, and particularly their absolute teachings, like there is no self, it's an Atman, or it's emptiness, shunyata, or voidness, or something. Because they know how easy it is for our minds, once you use a positive term, to glom onto it and make it into a something. And of course, it's not in any tradition. The divine is not any some thing at all. But it also ends up being rather nihilistic, uh, sounding anyway. So it's important to say you discover there is no self-meditating, but then you could flip around and very easily say no self is meditating, God is meditating. And so the one that you are looking for, yes, is the one who wants to meditate. Now we flip into some Abrahamic traditions. We could go back to Sufism. The one who desires to meditate desires to know itself because it was a hidden treasure that longed to be known. So these teachings actually, at a certain point, we can weave them together, not just throw them together in an inconsistent medley, which a lot of traditionalists object to and rightly object to. You can't just pick and choose and throw it all together and come up with something. But if you understand the principles and you understand the truths that are being talked about, yes, you can then start weaving them together. Yes. Is it Eckhart that said something about the process of subtraction? It's actually all through uh, Christian uh, mysticism. It's got uh, some fancy Greek names, the apathetic way and the kepo, katho, what? Cataphetic. The way of negation and the way of affirmation. And most Christian mystics will say the way of negation is actually higher than the way of affirmation. So the way of affirmation is you say all the good things about God. The way of negation is you deny anything about God. So you end up with God is nothing, is emptiness, empty of any attributes, empty of anything you could say about it. See what I mean? So it's a formal practice within Christian mystical tradition, not just Meister Eckhart, although he talks a lot about it. Uh, he talks about it in a practical way. What should you do? You should sink down out of being something into nothing. 
And then that nothingness that's you finds the nothingness that's God. And you know, as the bard said, a nothingness by any other name is a nothingness just the same. <laughs> Ibn Arabi, a great Sufi, says, thingness is the one thing we don't attribute to Allah. Allah is not a thing. So, you know, uh, in Judaism, among the Kabbalists and the Hasids, God has no attributes. Einsof is the technical term that the Kabbalists like, which just means without limit, without any sort of limit. Can't say any more about it. That's the ultimate you can say. Beyond that, there's no higher word you can use. So these things all come together, and we find these common principles. It's like all roads lead to Rome. Abdullah. My question is about uh, compassion. I've heard you talk about it one time, but you didn't continue, where you're saying compassion is not that gooey feeling, and that's your word. Right. So, uh, yes, it's my word. <laughs> if you can elaborate on that. Yes, yes very good. Thank you. Um, in English, compassion usually means to us some gooey feelings we have. And there are moments in life where we get those gooey feelings. You know, we see things on television and natural disasters, a war or whatever, and suddenly we have this welling up of feeling. And then we start practicing. We get a teaching like this, you know, you should be compassionate to all creatures. We can be compassionate to your enemies, let's say. Well, then we try to generate these gooey feelings. Well, we can't keep them going. First of all, feelings themselves are impermanent. And then, you know, often... You want to feel compassionate, what you feel is anger or outrage or, you know, whatever. So instead of saying, oh, the teachings are no good, throw them away, we need to look deeper. And we find what is really the root of compassion. Does it really mean an emotion or is it then more of an attitude? Like an attitude of suspending judgment. You know, they're judgments, but we allow them to dissolve and then what is there? So this is like a deeper teaching of compassion. This is what Kuan Yin, for instance, exemplifies when she'll save somebody, even though he's a rotten son of a bitch, but just because he needs help. And then you realize that the compassion is a response to something you recognize in another person that's from you. So you might actually feel you're, you're pushing that person away, and then you realize that you've been in a, the other person's shoes, and people have pushed you away. You see what I mean? And now there's a sense of I'm suffering with this person. It has nothing to do with gooey, gushy feelings. It's now we're sharing the suffering. And now you're saying, hey, hey, brother or sister, I know where you've been. You see, I've been there. And there's a natural reaching out. You know what I mean? So it goes deeper and deeper like this. Compassion may be expressed even in taking a tough attitude. We have an expression in English, tough love. So somebody in your family, whatever, they're on the road to self-destruction. They're drinking themselves to death or they're on drugs and they want more money to buy more drugs. And at a certain point, you say, no, that's compassion, even though it doesn't seem gushy and you won't have necessarily gushy feelings, but you have their interests at heart. You see what I mean? And you're saying, no, you have to fall to the bottom. That's what has to happen, but I'm not going to keep supporting this. So there are a lot of ways that compassion gets expressed, but it's through the practice of it that it starts to reveal itself. All right, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to stay, check out the library, have some tea, and have some good conversation. Until we see you again, peace to you all.